When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. KPCC podcasts are supported by the Netflix series Mindhunter. This season, the unit interviews more notorious serial killers and starts to investigate high-profile cases such as Wichita's BTK, Mindhunter Season 2, now streaming only on Netflix. And HBO, presenting Game of Thrones. Critics have hailed the final season as TV's greatest show of all time. An era-defining, nominated for 32 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series, the most Emmy nominations of any drama ever. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics this week will review Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Directed and co-written by Richard Linklater. It stars Kate Blanchett. The Angry Birds Movie 2 is this week's animated feature. And we'll hear about the comedy Good Boys. It's rated R, despite uh, three stars who are portraying sixth graders in the film. Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Amy Nicholson, film writer for The Guardian and host of the podcast Unspooled and the podcast miniseries Zoom. Charles Solomon, film critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine and Wade Major of Synagogues.com. All of them, of course, most importantly, of Film Week. And we're going to get right into the reviews this week. Uh, we begin with Where'd You Go, Bernadette? A loving mom decides to reconnect with her creativity after raising her family. Kate Blanchett stars. Richard Linklater is the director and co-screenwriter. Wade? Love this movie. It might be one of my favorite Linklater films. Uh, I, there, you know, he Linklater is such a diverse filmmaker. You can never tell when one of his films is a Linklater film. He doesn't have a signature that sort of establishes his sensibilities. He's so versatile, and he stretches sometimes in ways that are really exhilarating. If it's something like, you know, uh, the, the Beyond films or uh, the, the or uh, Days and Confused Boyhood, you you feel him in those. This is something that is really kind of outside his experience. Kate Blanchett is a is a woman who is a very successful architect and then just kind of imploded for some reason. And she's married to Billy Crudup, who's a tech guy. They have a daughter and things aren't quite right in their lives. She's not working. She's just kind of not even doing anything with this old house that they've moved into in Seattle. And it's about how she discovers why she's so angry and frustrated, why she fights with the neighbors like Kristen Wiig, why she's so bitter. And it's it's one of those sort of existential journeys back to life again and it's so positive is the beautiful thing here the characters are so affirming it doesn't have that hollywood cynicism that we're so accustomed to and that's what's nice link ladder is really an optimist and he brings such a beautiful sheen to this thing and he takes his time it's paced in a really wonderful way you never feel like this is a hollywood structure here we are getting to the 30 minute mark and something's got to happen Things just happen in their own time and in their own pace, and you just sit back and you have an absolutely wonderful time with these characters. It's a beautiful film. Now, not that you've necessarily
necessarily uh, read the novel by Maria Semple no. on which it's based, but uh, do you have any sense of how faithful it is to the novel or how far Linklater I, I, went I from did, it? I did hear from a couple of people that it's faithful to the novel in spirit, is what they said. So I don't take that for, for what it is, but they say it's faithful to the novel in spirit. I think Kate Blanchett could well get, if, if this film has legs into award season, she could be a dark horse for another nomination. We're talking about Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Richard Linklater directing. He co-wrote it with Holly Gent and Vincent Palmo Jr. Uh, and the film is rated PG-13. It's in wide release. John Horn of The Frame earlier this week spoke with Richard Linklater about the film. We have a link on our Film Week page where you can hear John's conversation with Linklater. Uh, the Angry Birds Movie 2 animated feature that's directed by uh, Thurop Van Oren. Peter Ackerman is the writer of the Angry Birds movie to- too. Charles, what do you think? Well, the first Angry Birds movie came out and the game was already passé. And I mean, who plays Angry Birds anymore? You know, they've moved on to Candy Crush or something. So it feels unnecessary. But so much of the film is on the nose and so on the nose that for the last half hour, I was giving the dialogue with the characters before they started speaking as Oh, this is where he's going to say say this. And, you know, Red, who was the hero of the, the first film, has to learn that just being the hero and claiming everything for himself isn't important, that, you know, there are other things in life. Uh, there's an, a rather obnoxious um, new female character who's an engineer and, of course, solves all the problems. And I kept contrasting her within the, the um, My Hero Academia movie. There was a brilliant young girl who was an engineer who had really interesting things to say and do in the story rather than this sort of by-the-numbers stuff. And so I was just, you know, looking at my watch and saying, how much more of this do I have to watch for Larry? And, and <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate but, it, Charles. But showing with this is an absolutely charming short film called Hair Love, it was funded by a huge Kickstarter campaign. They raised more than $300,000. It was written by Matthew Cherry, who co-directed it, the ex-NFL player, about an African-American father trying to get, trying to fix his little daughter's hair on a very important day. And it is warm and charming and funny with the humor coming out of their characters and their situations. Uh, it's everything Angry Birds isn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out to be an Oscar nominee in the short category. It's just a delightful little film that's so worth seeing and deserves better company. What's the title again of the Hair short love. film? Hair Love. Hair Love. All right. And that is the opener for the Angry Birds 2 movie, which is in wide release, rated PG. The adventure comedy Good Boys is directed by Gene Stupnitsky, about three sixth graders who ditch school and go on a long journey to try and make their way home in time for a party. There's going to be girls at the party. Do you know what that means? Drama. No. Kissing. You do not want to go to Soren's party not knowing how to kiss. We could spy on my neighbor. She's a total nymphomaniac. She starts fires? No, she's a nymphomaniac. Someone who has sex on land and sea. Good boys, um, ironically, sixth graders in an R-rated film. Amy, what do you think? Uh, this movie is terrific. This is a sort of big, gigantic studio comedy I wish the studios were making more of. This might be my favorite big studio comedy of the year. I mean, as you can hear from this film, it is definitely rated R. It is not for sixth graders. 
I'm sorry if there are any sixth graders listening, I, or the parents of them. I strongly encourage you to secretly get this movie and watch it at a slumber party. I think it would be <laughs> terrific. They actually made part of the marketing campaign. You have to be so tall to see the <laughs> film as a joke about it. I mean, and that makes sense, because a lot of the comedy here in this movie is about this gulf between these three boys who are fascinated by everything, by hormones, by what they've heard about what grown-up life is going to be like, by alcohol. This huge gulf between what they think they know about what all of these things are and then what they actually know. And, of course, they're braggadocious, so they're always bragging about these things that they have no idea about. And it really does have this wonderful sixth-grade boy mindset. You know, this world where everybody's bragging about, can you have one sip of beer? Well, I dare you to take two sips of beer. And it really does exist on that level of comedy, but it's just terrific. And, yeah, the plot is about this all-day Rube Goldberg adventure that these three best friends embark on to make it to the sixth-grade kissing party, which is very important for one of them, and that's Jacob Tremblay, who people know from Room, who I love that they, his parents were like, you can be in this Oscar movie, and now go for it. Have so much fun in this one. And it's him, and there's a kid who's more of the theater type, and then there's a kid who's this absolute upstanding good kid who just keeps blurting out things he should not be blurting out to authority figures and cops. And it's just... Terrific. I had so much fun watching this. The audience in my theater was laughing and losing their minds. I really hope people go and check this one out. It feels kind of just what you want to see in the summer. That's not a franchise film. Uh, Gene Stupnitsky and Lee Eisenberg wrote the screenplay. Stupnitsky directed the film. Jacob, uh, Jacob Tremblay, Brady Noon, Keith L. Williams are the stars. Good Boys is rated R. It's in wide release. Uh, Blinded by the Light, a story of a British-Pakistani teenager back in 1987. Uh, the film is a comedic drama with music. Wade, what'd you think? I thoroughly enjoy this. And, you know, conflict of interest week for me here. I, I have friends who've produced films for Grinder Chada in the past, and I, I just have a natural inclination to love her movies. Uh, Bennett like Beckham, Bride and Prejudice, Bollywood Musical. She has a wonderful sensibility um, about how these South Asian British culture clashes sort of position themselves in British society in particular. And Bennett like Beckham was all a, a great deal about that. And there's a lot of that here, too. What I'm afraid is that people are going to superficially connect this to yesterday because, well, they're both about, you know, the lead character in each of them is is Pakistani. One's about, you know, his obsession with the Beatles. The other one is about his obsession with uh, Bruce Springsteen. So therefore, these movies are analogous. They're not at all. Yesterday doesn't make any issue of race or ethnicity. Yesterday simply has that as a character simply, you know, because that's the best actor they had. And it's a fantasy and it's a wonderful fantasy. This is based on an actual memoir. This is based on a memoir by Sarfraz Manzoor, who really really did become obsessed with Bruce Springsteen in the 80s, who kind of found himself in this cultural melange, you know, Pakistani family, but he wants to be British. And here's an American singer that somehow brings it all together and makes it OK to be, a, you know, who you are, who you really are. And it's it's really quite a, a wonderful story, the way it's told. It's uh, it's earnest and it's heartfelt. And it takes place, obviously, right in the middle of Thatcher era England. And it's able to make 
commentary on that without the characters being lost in in that commentary. Um, it's uh, it's really it's really a very very sweet film. And uh, you, you know the the I'm not a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and I remember the era very well, and I, there are some songs I like, but there is something infectious about the way that he is able to incorporate those lyrics into his life, and the way that Gorinder finds to sort of uh, externalize his appreciation for the lyrics, even though he's listening on headphones through, through much of the film. There are devices that she relies on to kind of bring it to you, to bring you close to the characters. It pans out very nicely. Now, Gorinder Chata, if her previous films had wide release like this one? I don't know how wide. Bend It Like Beckham did very, very oh, well. Oh, yeah, that, that was, that's right. That was, that was the one that really, really put her on the map. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That was all over the place. Blinded by the Light uh, is the film. It's rated PG-13 and is in wide release. Ready or Not, a horror thriller directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpen and Tyler Gillette, tells the story of a bride's wedding night, which takes a sinister turn when her eccentric in-laws force her to take part in a terrifying game. So, at midnight, you have to play a game. It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game? What game? Hide and seek? Are we really going to play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you. Good luck. Uh, Ready or Not is co-written by Guy Busick and R. Christopher Murray. It's the screenwriting uh, debut for both of of them and Ready or Not. Uh, Amy, what do you think? Yeah, so the family here that is hosting this game is kind of imagine like an evil Milton Bradley family. Like if the Milton Bradley family was this gigantic, cruel one percenter dynasty that had made this billionaire fortune on board games. And so, yes, when you marry into this family, one of the hurdles you have to leap over into, in order to join this basically Kennedys of gaming is you have to play a game that's that's picked at random from this box. And it could be Twister. It could be Go Fish. In this case, she gets hide and go seek where if they find her, they kill her. And it's all in order of for this family to appease what they believe is this kind of spirit that gave the family the luck in order to be rich. And if they don't do this, they're going to lose all their money. This is played straight. It's, I mean, it sounds so comedic. <laughs> it does start a little bit like Clue, which I liked. And then it gets incredibly gory, which I was not expecting. And, you know, I think if I'd been prepped for the gore, I would have been a little bit more on the gore ride. The gore sort of shows up and you're like, whoa, I was <laughs> not expecting that in this film. But it does go very, very hard on the 1%. So I can imagine a lot of people hooting and cheering as they watch this. I really love the setup here. I love the premise. Samara Weaving, who who plays the bride, she really starts off this film with just this radiance. You just see her in her wedding dress, her glee when she looks at her, her husband-to-be, how much she loves him. And you adore her, and you're very much on her side. I think that she does a really terrific job. She's an Australian actress who basically looks exactly like Margot Robbie. So if you can't afford Margot Robbie, I highly recommend a Samara Weaving. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you get like the sort, of, the sort of tough girl moments where she swaps out her heels for sneakers and starts running around and tearing off all the tool. And, you know, it's it's predictable and sometimes a little bit unsteady. There's some stuff I wish worked better than it did. But it was fun. It was fun. Ready or not, rated R. It's uh, in wide release starting next Wednesday, the 21st of August. Ready or not. Uh, American Factory, a documentary which is streaming on Netflix starting next week. Amy, what would you think of it? 
Well, yeah, since Wade and Charles have taken their turn making bold Oscar predictions, <laughs> yeah. I'll do mine. I think American Factory, this documentary that's coming out on Netflix on Wednesday, is almost certainly going to be in, in, the, in the running commentary for Oscar documentary nominations. It's really terrific. It's really relevant. And what it's about is there's an, a GM factory in Dayton, Ohio, that closed down, and this Chinese glass company takes it over. And so it's about this culture clash that happens. You know, we had movies like this in the 80s, comedies about you know the Japanese... Uh, businessmen coming here making cars and this is very much about that except it's real so you watch these Chinese employees take lessons in American culture that are not entirely flattering and then you watch these employees who are at first very grateful to have jobs realize that the Chinese expectations of what a worker is supposed to do in a factory what they're supposed to put up with safety wise union busting wise or union prevention wise you know it's very tough it's this is a funny movie but it's also incredibly relevant and i really look forward to the conversations and this is made by the obama's production company this is one right? of the first things they came on board to say like we want to put our stamp on this all right uh, they have a deal with netflix this is streaming on netflix starting the middle of next week the documentary american factory directed by Stephen bognar and julia reichert you're listening to film week on 89.3 kpcc and we'll be back with more reviews in one minute. KPCC podcasts are supported by the Netflix series Mindhunter, inspired by events recounted in former FBI agent John Douglas' book, Mindhunter, Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit. This season, the unit interviews more notorious serial killers and starts to investigate high-profile cases such as Wichita, Kansas, BTK, and an emerging serial killer in Atlanta. Directed by David Fincher, Andrew Dominic, and Carl Franklin. Mindhunter Season 2, now streaming only on Netflix. Defender of Angry Birds wants to point out that uh, Rotten Tomatoes has uh, the highest score for any video game adaptation ever for Angry Birds 2. So well, there's a <laughs> distinction. That's, that, that's a, that's a, that's a that's qualification. So so, well, I was say, up that's a limited uh, Yeah, and what about some of the Pokemon movies? Uh, so it's a low bar. but <laughs> It's a very low bar. It includes Postal. <laughs> All right. Uh, we continue with Danish director Mads Brugger's uh, film, uh, the documentary Cold Case Hammerskold. Wade, what do you think of this doc? Uh, I was blown away. It's a very unconventional doc, the way it's put together. Uh, Mads Brugger kind of frames it around his own thought process. He sits there with a couple of um, uh, transcribers, typists, who, who are transcribing his ideas and putting notes on a board, and that sort of frames out the structure for you as he's thinking it through. Uh, and it's it's revisiting the the death of uh, in 1961 of UN Secretary General uh, Dag Hammarskjöld who um, who died in a plane crash in Africa and the speculation is was he killed was he assassinated because he was looking to uh, lead the African nations out of their colonial connections to their 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 previous colonial um, uh, European the, the European nations that had colonized them and sort of disconnect them economically from those countries and give them a sense of independence and freedom. Was he killed because of that? And you think, well, that's a little bit of a reach. You're kind of paranoid and you're a little bit of a weird Danish guy. And uh, but I'll indulge you. And about an hour later, I'm all in because they they don't just discover evidence; they discover proof. 
and people who are willing to talk. And in years in the making, he and this Swedish investigator who's working with him, they uncover not just that conspiracy, but tangential crimes and conspiracies and black ops things going on that just blow your mind. And it's really extraordinary what they've uncovered. And apparently the UN now is even investigating because of what they uncovered in this documentary. Wow. Cold case, Hammerskold. Uh, Amy, what do you think? Yeah, it's truly wild. And we're going to touch on this again, I think, later this show. Um, watching these documentarians, the new style type of doc- documentarian, use these techniques from fi- fiction and use sort of self-reflexivity, cast themselves in there. Yeah. Tell you, the audience, like, I've cast two people to play my secretary, even in this movie, and have them sort of give dialogue and questions and prompts. But yet, in the service of telling a true story here that really unfolds you know, kind of like a thriller, like you're watching Snowman or, or Girl with a Dragon Tattoo or the thrillers that have been coming out of Scandinavia lately. It fits like it, it feels like it could fit right in there. And one of the things he uncovers is, you know, ads for a group that is called the South African Maritime Institute, which sounds like a very banal name for a group that sounds like it's mercenaries. And he is able to find some of these people and ask them what happened when they were working for this group, not even in the 60s, but in the 80s and what they were doing then. It's it's a really chilling. It's bone chilling. It is bone chilling. What they discover. We're talking about the documentary from Mads Brueger, Cold Case Hummerskold. You can see it at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, downtown L.A., and at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica. The film is unrated. It was the Sundance winner, uh, best uh, director for documentary film in the world cinema category. And John Horn of The Frame talked with director Mads Brueger on The Frame earlier this week. You can hear that interview by... uh, Uh, Clicking on the link on the Film Week page at kpcc.org. Bunuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles, uh, a film uh, that includes animation. Uh, It's primarily in Spanish. The director is Salvador Simo. Charles, what do you think? Well, we first saw this at uh, Animationist Film last year. And when I heard about it, I thought, well, that's a weird thing to try and animate. But it very quickly won me over. The story is so wonderfully improbable that uh, Bunuel ran into a lot of trouble after Lage d'Or played. And a friend of his who was a sculptor said, I'm, you know, I'm entering the lottery. If I win, I'll give you the money to make this film that you want to make about this uh, impoverished area of Spain. He won the lottery. He gave him the money. And since you re- can't recreate a lot of this, they animate it, um, and it works surprisingly well for the most part. They intercut it with clips from the Bunwell film about uh, this impoverished uh, region. It's the land without bread. Um, and I was surprisingly kind of charmed by it, that it was just so off the wall and so, so something that we're just not used to people doing uh, in animation. Uh, what do you think, Wade? I agree. It, it is really intriguing. I, I don't think it's 100% successful, but it's it's really ambitious, so you can sort of forgive the rough edges in places. Uh, you know, Las Hordas, uh, Land, Land Without Bread, was only a short film. It's only 30 minutes long. Um, so it's unusual that you make a feature film about the making, a feature animated film about the making of a short live-action documentary from 1933. Bunuel didn't really hit his stride until he was a much older man, until he was in his 50s. That's when his 50s and 60s is when he made most of his real masterpieces. So this is, here he is, you know, a 33-year-old man thinking that he's he's failed and his first feature has flopped. and He's so washed up. He's washed up, you know, before he's even gotten out of the blocks. And uh, so here he pulls together a skeleton crew and goes to this remote place and makes one of the great short documentaries of all time. And it is, what is really interesting to me is that they have the confidence in the animation to intercut live 
segments, actual film from this documentary with the animation, knowing that you are going to contrast how these characters have been drawn relative to how they actually looked. You're going to judge the animation now. You're going to judge the art based on the images that Bunuel shot in 1933. They have that much confidence in their animation. And that is really kind of encouraging. Bunuel in The Labyrinth of the Turtles, uh, animated film from Spain. Salvador Simo, the director and co-screenwriter. It's unrated at the New Art Theater in West L.A. The documentary Jay Myself is directed by Josh Alexander. It follows photographer Jay Maisel. Wade? Love this. This is uh, conflict of interest number two for me this week. My friend Doug Blush was an executive producer and editor on this. Uh, Doug is kind of the, the elite editor in the documentary field. He's Oscar nominated almost every year. And what a great movie this is. We've, we've covered so many movies about great photographers on Film Week over the years. And, and they're usually about people who they became alcoholics or they were never discovered or they died young and we never saw all of their photographs. And there's always some tragic twist. Like that great the story, the housekeeper was yeah. like, had all these incredible photos. I don't remember the name of the documentary, but it was extraordinary. There, there, but there's always, a, there's always a tragic twist. There is no tragic twist here. Jay Maisel is a great photographer. He bought this building uh, in the 1950s, which is known as the Germania building, uh, right in the Bowery District, which, you know, an office building an old New York office building and put his gallery on one floor and a basketball court on another. And he's lived there with his wife and his daughter and they've had a wonderful life. And uh, it comes around. It's time to, you know, time, time to move. Can't take care of the building anymore. So he sells it for fifty five million dollars. And this movie it revisits his entire career while he has to move thousands of boxes of material out of this building before the deadline for, for the sale. He's rich beyond his wildest dreams because of a real estate sale, the biggest private real estate sale in New York history, and more than he ever made as a photographer. But in the process, we got to get all this stuff together. It's like now, a weird episode of Hoarders or something. It, it really <laughs> is, but it's just, it's, it's a wonderful, it's an opportunity for him and the filmmakers to revisit his life and career and, and his family and his wife and his daughter, and they're wonderful people. And you just fall in love with everyone in this movie. It is just such a wonderful trip. And it is much of this... Ju- that the filmmakers are able in the style of the film to depict who he is as a person. Absolutely. And he is really forthcoming. I mean, he's 88 years old, but he's still vibrant and he still has great stories to tell. And everyone around him is funny and they have great stories about him. And his photography is really extraordinary. He's not, you know, he's not a street photographer. He's an artist. And he takes pictures uh, that are, you know, I mean, certainly some are, are well known, but mostly he's trying to paint with light and with composition. And it's just, it's beautiful. Does he say what he's going to do with 55 million? Yeah, they bought bought a sixteen million dollar place in uh, in Brooklyn. Where Downsizing, he had downsized a bit. Everything has to be in storage now, you know. Uh, and yeah. leaves him with a lot of uh, <laughs> money left over. Jay, myself, the documentary from Josh Alexander. I'm sorry, Stephen Wilkes. Josh Alexander wrote the script for the documentary. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, Driven, a biographical thriller starring Lee Pace, Jason Sudeikis, and Judy Greer, Nick Ham, the director, Colin Bateman, the screenwriter. Wait, I'm just thrilled anytime Judy Greer shows up in a movie again. Uh, this is this is a, a, a very serviceable drama about the DeLorean scandal. 
seen through the eyes of uh, of Jim Hoffman, who was the the kind of sleazy neighbor who uh, who had a, a history with the FBI, became an informant, and basically turned state's evidence on on DeLorean, and you know uh, may or may not have uh, embellished the stories. So the everything is seen through the point of view of Hoffman, who's played by Jason Sudeikis. Lee Pace plays uh, DeLorean. And it does kind of follow the Scorsese Goodfellas template a little bit, uh, maybe a little too closely, but it's very competently made. Uh, doesn't really do anything remarkable, but I will say Lee Pace is amazing as John DeLorean really, really gets under your skin and creeps you out. What do you think, Amy? Yeah, the way that Lee Pace plays uh, plays DeLorean is he plays him basically like a Gatsby figure. And in a lot of ways, that's what this film is. It's one hand, a Gatsby story, a guy who looked at this rich neighbor he had, a guy who has himself, you know, Almost no moral it's a great compass way of at putting all. It. Yeah, it is, yeah. And, you, and, and that's sort of the way that that um, that Lee Pace plays. He sort of wanders through these giant parties where he's not having any fun, but he's very good at faking it. And so is everybody else. Everyone in this movie is very much just a spin maker, a spin artist, always lying to get themselves out of a jam. And when the film starts, it actually has kind of more of a slapstick comedy tone that I would say I was not that into. But as it deepens, as you spend more time with these people, it does become more of a tragedy, a bright colored kind of slapsticky tragedy, but a tragedy of people who just keep betraying each other. And I didn't realize how much I didn't really know about the DeLorean case and how much this film makes the argument that he was very much set up, but also his own hubris had a ton to do with it. Film is driven. It's at the AMC Universal City Walk, rated R. The amazing Jonathan documentary, a documentary about the final tour of a dying uh, magician, Benjamin Berman, the director. Wade? Such a weird movie. So The Amazing Jonathan was is, a, is an illusionist who showed up in lots of talk shows back in the 80s and, and 90s and uh, now finds out that he has a terminal illness. So Ben Berman is a filmmaker who says, well, I'm going to make a documentary about him. And it seems like a fairly routine documentary about a guy who once had a great life and now he's suffering. Until suddenly the documentary crew becomes the subject of their own movie because now there are all of these other documentary crews showing up making documentaries. And, and, and all of these weird twists and double crosses and triple crosses and sleights of hand start happening. And the question is, wait a minute, is this whole, is this whole thing an illusion? Is the, the master of the sleight of hand, the master of illusion pulling a joke on us while we're making a movie about him? And when it, when the documentary becomes its own subject, when the documentarian starts interviewing himself and he has no idea what he's going to do and what's going on, it goes really deep into Weirdsville. And uh, I don't know that I wound up loving it, but I couldn't stop watching it. It sounds like an old Burns and Allen episode where George would does. look at the TV yeah. and comment on what was going yeah. on. Yeah. The amazing Jonathan documentary Amy? Yeah, I mean, the amazing Jonathan at the center of this, he you really see him pit these different documentary crews against each other. He, he keeps bragging that not Ben Berman, but the other guys have won two Oscars and insulting Ben Berman to his face. Like, yeah, eh, let them get this shot. I'll do this interview with them. And you start sort of getting angry at this man who has a fatal heart condition, which yeah, you is you were very supposed strange. to love him initially, and now you're, <laughs> yeah. now you're getting angry at him. Exactly. And I think people's mileage with this documentary will, will depend on how charming you think Benjamin Berman is, this documentary, and at the center of it, who then starts just putting himself in front of the camera. 
I didn't find him incredibly charming. I found him a little bit annoying. I mean, is there really but, another film? But and is that to come? I oh, went oh, on yeah. a dive, and yes, I found the other ones. I found yeah. at least one of them. Yeah. But it's not. It's not even. See, I didn't need for him to be charming. I just needed to to sort of enjoy how how manic he was becoming. He's getting paranoid. He doesn't know what to do. He's like, I don't know what. I, what am I? What? Are, he's just. He's flustered. And I really got. And I sort of got into the flustered aspect of it. Can you imagine this guy traveling with what three dollars? Documentary crews simultaneously. Oh, you wish it was only three. (laughs) (laughs) The amazing Jonathan documentary, This Doc from Benjamin Berman at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema downtown, the Lemley Playhouse Pasadena, and it's streaming on Hulu. The documentary is unrated. We have more films to review with our critics. We'll be back shortly. KPCC podcasts are supported by HBO, presenting Sharp Objects, based on the best-selling novel by Gillian Flynn. The story focuses on Camille Preaker, a journalist with a history of psychiatric issues who returns to her rural hometown to cover the apparent murders of two preteen girls. The limited series was hailed by critics as exquisite, hauntingly compelling, and a true masterpiece. Nominated for eight Emmys, including Outstanding Limited Series. Visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on Sharp Objects. Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle with critics Charles Solomon, Wade Major, and Amy Nicholson. Next up, the drama Low Low, written and directed by Nick Ritchie. Stars uh, Ali Ritchie, uh, Alexis uh, Raish, and Casey Rogers. Wade? Really, uh, conflict of interest number three. I, I, I know Nick Ritchie. <laughs> you know and, and too many people. You're I know famous too, and powerful. I just, yes. I have to, full disclosure. He's one of the beautiful people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I know Nick Ritchie and Ali Ritchie. Lovely, uh, the husband and wife. Uh, she's an actress. He's a writer-director. And uh, great family, Ali's sister Hunter was a contestant on American Idol some years ago and should have won. So very talented <laughs> people, very talented people here. And this is a certain. This kind of belongs to two genres at the same time. It belongs to the sort of uh, the wasted youth genre, which includes things like American Honey, you know, where you have kids that just sort of are aimless in life and don't know what they're going to do, and they're a little bit reckless, and eventually they sort of learn how to put it together, or hopefully they learn. And then there's also the L.A. independent film scene, where a lot of people here, because you have so much talent in town that isn't working people are people make their own little independent films about you know life in Los Angeles and they bring their friends and everybody into it and and you know try to make a mark and the problem with both of those is that the first one is usually made by people who don't really know their subject and the second one is usually made by people who really don't know how to make movies um, Nick knows Nick doesn't doesn't fall into either of those traps this is a really interesting film about four young women who are now going to transition out of high school and into the next phase of their lives are they going to go to college? Probably not, because their grades aren't good enough, and they're they're a little bit reckless, and they come from broken families and bad backgrounds. So what are they going to do? School gave you structure. Now where does your life go? Uh, now you have to grow up, and and that's a real dilemma. And it's treated here with with seriousness and maturity and insight, and some really really good performances by some some terrific actors that really deserve to 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 move on and do bigger and better things. Um, 
it's, it, it doesn't sort of go to the familiar parts of L.A. where you go, oh, I've been on that street. Oh, I, was, I was just there the other day. Finds little nooks and crannies and, and areas where the characters get to sort of shine in their environment. And uh, it's, it's put together very, very smartly. Movie is low, low. It's unrated. You can see it at the downtown independent downtown L.A. Uh, the Japanese action film Kingdom is directed by uh, Shinsuke Sato. Charles, what do you think? Well, this is um, fantasy is putting it mildly for this film. It's based on a long running manga that's been animated. It's about how um, the king of the of the warring state realm of Xin uh, will eventually become the wicked emperor, the, the unifier of China who builds the Great Wall. In this case, it's because he has uh, as an aspiring general, a former slave boy who has taught himself martial arts and swordsmanship to a fast and fantastic degree. Uh, they fall in with a palace rebellion. And once, you know, the ex-slave and the deposed king and the queen of the mountain people who could, uh, as a sword-wielding Amazon who could off Brie Larson without breaking a sweat, and a couple of other stalwart heroes come along, you know the 80,000-man army doesn't stand a chance against this band, and sure enough, they don't. And fists fly, and swords fly, and darts fly, and clubs fly, and halberds fly, and boots fly, and uh, it's kind of nine-stop action. It's over the top, but it's kind of fun. Kingdom. (laughs) It is totally bonkers, as (laughs) Japanese period films tend to be, especially the ones that are based on mangas, uh, the live-action ones at at least. Uh, It's a little weird watching a, a what is basically Chinese history told in Japanese. That's a little bit weird and it takes some getting used to um, and I've seen so many I mean there have been so many movies and TV series made about the first emperor and almost none of them bear any resemblance to reality or history it's just a great vehicle to tell your stories and the same thing here there's no there's no historical accuracy to this thing whatsoever half these characters never lived none of this stuff ever actually happened but you know what it's a great it's a great skeleton on which to hang a really fun bonkers period manga and live action film and I had a I had a blast with it. It's it, it takes some weird turns that you just don't see coming. Kingdom is rated R. It's in select theaters. Remember that? Well, maybe if you saw the final cut of the iconic film Blade Runner, uh, released in 1982, Harrison Ford's character Deckard dreams of a unicorn. It was cut from the original theatrical release of the film, but it was included in the final cut, which was supervised by Ridley Scott. And it's argued that that dream sequence dramatically changes the viewer's interpretation of the film and the Deckard character. On Film Week, we turn our attention to director's cuts of films and um, whether it's for the best, whether it's for the worst, and the different reasons why we get multiple versions of a movie. Um, Blade Runner is a great example, Wade, because, what, it's got four or five different versions. Yeah, there were a whole bunch, and I've seen every single one of them in the theater. (laughs) Every single time somebody said, oh, this is the definitive. Oh, no, sorry, that was a rough 
cut. No, this is the definitive. Oh, no, that was the... And it, and it always turns out that what they found and what they thought was definitive was not. And eventually Ridley Scott just said, look, just stop it. I'll, I'll make you my definitive version. And he did. And it's brilliant. The final cut. The final cut. It is, uh, you know, there, there are three reasons why we usually get these director's cuts. And this is the first and most important one, which is the director gets it taken away from them. And they don't actually get to deliver their favorite. Um, sometimes they have a change of heart after the fact. I generally don't like those. And then the third reason is because somebody in the studio said we need to release another DVD. Let's just go mercenary and, and make a director's cut just for the hell of it. And those are almost always superfluous with a lot of scenes that should have never been made put in the final film. But uh, absolutely. Brazil and Blade Runner are like the two legendary ones of recent decades. Yeah. Well, uh, Charles, this uh, ever happened with animation? It, it's rare, particularly in American animation, because everything is kind of pre-edited. You know, there are a couple of examples. They put the human again song back in Beauty and the Beast and you realized, oh, it really does slow down the story. And Brad added a couple of scenes to the Iron Giant for its Blu-ray. There's the soup eating sequence from Snow White. The one thing that sort of corresponds to what Wade was saying about Blade Runner is the series Neon Genesis Evangelion, one of the watershed anime series where the director, Hideaki Anno, has never figured out how to end it. He did, you know, it was a 26-episode series. Then he recut the last episodes. Then he did one feature that didn't satisfy anybody with an ending. He did a second feature that's the closest thing I've ever seen to animated schizophrenia. And now he's redoing the whole thing as four animated features. And he's done three of them. And everybody's waiting for number four and saying, can he end this story? <laughs> but I would like to add, I think if there are director's cuts of some movies that are longer, there should be audience cuts of others that are shorter. I love that idea. <laughs> in which case, you know, like The Green Mile and Sheltering Sky will come in at about 10 minute shorts. <laughs> uh, Solomon's Law. Okay. Well, it's funny, Amy, because, um, you know, we've got a pop Apocalypse Now final cut, which uh, just had its premiere this this is the version that Francis Ford Coppola says he he finally likes. There there was Apocalypse Now Redux, mm -hmm. which had you know fifty minutes of extra footage that, that came long out. That bit you know, on the on the French plantation up the river, the weird uh, yeah. So the new one, the final cut now is like three hours long. I'm not sure I have any patience for that. To be <laughs> I mean, the Coppolas and the Ridley Scotts of the world, the the tinkerers who can't ever put a film down. I I don't always want to go with them on the mission. You know, I I would prefer to see director's cuts by like say Ari Aster, who did Midsummer this year. He has a he has a cut that's thirty thirty minutes longer. That feels like he knew the movie he wanted to make. It was just going to be extra long. If you really liked Midsummer, you want to see it? Yes. But it feels like a remake with an end in sight and not just endless bits of tinkering by people who I feel like could just commit already and tell the story they want to it, say. It, it's true. Coppola, Coppola can't stop tinkering with Apocalypse. There was never a problem there. That original cut was his desired cut. With Ridley Scott, it's a little different and, and in every single case. With with uh, uh, Blade Runner, it was taken away from him originally. With and, the of, voice over added and the, the voiceover added. And the voiceover added. And the happy ending. And the happy ending. Um, with with Legend, Sid Sheinberg took that away from him and, and mutilated it just like he did with Brazil. But Terry Gilliam was able to prevail because he took that full page ad out in Variety and said, Mr. Sheinberg, when are you going to release my movie? This universal Sid yeah, Sheinberg yeah. we're talking yeah, about. Although one, I would say, agreeing with what Amy was saying about the... Oh, I'm sorry. We'll pick up that thought as we continue with Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson, Wade Major. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. This is the Mantle Cut. We'll be back. 
We're now going to restore Charles Solomon's <laughs> contribution to uh, Film yeah, he Week. he was agreeing with me, Larry, and you <laughs> cut him sorry. off. And I'm sorry, I had to yeah, cut him off we, for a we break. We found that missing audio. <laughs> so, um, I was going to say that I think one other director's cut that really worked were Peter Jackson's longer versions of The Lord of the Rings, uh, where the, the rhythm just seemed to work better that way, and the films felt shorter, and the story better told. Uh, but I think that's unusual. I think that... If you had needed it, you would have realized it in the beginning, and you would have made the movie that way. And Wade, uh, Michael Mann actually did a shorter version so, that was his director's so cut. So, Last of the Mohicans was originally released at 112 minutes, and then he did a director's cut, or a director's expanded edition of 117 minutes, and then he went back to that and cut it down to 114 minutes for his definitive version. So, it it, it kind of kept, it, it, it inflated a little bit at first, and then he cut it, it back. It like and, a concertina. That's yeah. back but, and but the the 114 minute version of that I I do think is the best version. I think he finally got it right. Do you all agree with the Lord of the Rings that um, the later versions were the better? More story. I yeah. mean, for people like my mother, who's an obsessive and wants to see everything. Yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting well, is wait like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, Lord of the Rings is now becoming a, a TV show. You know, I think there's something interesting in this moment we're in right now, where the line between TV, film, and streaming is so blurred that we're watching filmmakers have a chance to tell these stories in longer versions. The way that Quentin Tarantino put a longer version of Hateful Eight up more as an episodic on Netflix, and I feel like the boundaries between a 90-minute film, a two-hour film, a four-hour something or other, whatever you want to call it on Netflix, are so permeable right now. It's really interesting to see people be able to play with that Did, did he ever put out a, a reconstructed Kill Bill with both Not parts yet. put together? Not yet. And there may still be a third part to it. That's still oh. that's still in the conversation. Quentin can't uh, can't stop teasing us. I, I do want to say, if not for the director's cut of Brazil, I probably wouldn't be here because Brazil... Uh, only, victory. Thank you. <laughs> Brazil only got released after after that uh, that ad when the L.A. film critics set, gave it best picture of the year before it had even been released, when it may not even have ever been released. And they forced that release. And that's when I said, I want to be one of those guys. He said, I want to make trouble. I want to make trouble. <laughs> so, yeah. Amy, do you have a, a favorite uh, director's cut that you thought I mean, made a film you didn't feel as strong about re- outstanding for you? Well, you know, favorite is a strong word, but I have one, a choice that I think was very smartly made, which is when Steven Spielberg took E.T. and he did a different director's cut. He didn't change that much about it, but what he did is he swapped out all the guns in the climactic ending sequence with walkie-talkies to kind of de-cool the gun imagery and also de-frighten it for kids in the generation who were very scared by that ending. And I do like the idea of us looking back at the films of the past and being able to say slightly like, I am tired of having so many guns in the scene. Why do we need so many guns? Like, is there a way to tell the story slightly differently? And I think that's smart. All right. Uh, there are other films, Wade, I know you wanted to talk about, including Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, I mean, Once Upon a Time in America, most famously, uh, Sergio Leone was forced to release that in a really truncated cut that was chronological and didn't sort of jump in time the way that his longer version does, which is a masterpiece. I mean, you know, I saw it originally at two and a half hours and, oh, that's OK. And then when you see it at four hours, you think, oh, this is just extraordinary. But who wanted to release a four hour movie at that time? Uh, Lawrence of Arabia also very famously was 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 hacked to pieces over the uh, the first part of its release by um, uh, the 
by Columbia and uh, and Sam Spiegel who produced it because it was too long, right? It was four hours and then it became you know three hours and fifty minutes and then it was like two hours and forty minutes and they're all. And that these was different... an event film. I'm that surprised they would yeah, cut that. That was, that, it, that was a, a major thing you went to. It was you know drinks. they they it just wound up being butchered into a bunch of different lengths at a certain point and and Lean had to David Lean had to come back in back in the nineties early nineties and put to before he passed and put together a definitive cut which is now the, the cut that everyone sees but they had to go back and get Anthony Hopkins to do to imitate the uh, or to get uh, to 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 uh, imitate some of the voices no it wasn't Anthony Hopkins no it was um, Peter O'Toole well Peter O'Toole did his own voices and somebody else did some of the others but they had to bring people back to re-record voices and uh, and and you know because they'd lost the soundtrack so uh, that was a really bit of an epic restoration too well when we talk about these things that are lost I mean I think about when they found the lost footage of Metropolis yeah. that was had been lost for 80 years because these prints you know would tour the country in different sort of versions and then a lot of them would get destroyed burned lost and when you find an old print of a movie that fills in some of the gaps that yeah. were cut out of ours and you're able to restore it and have people say like oh now I understand what they were doing with the robot army a little bit better yeah. I think it's so exciting to be able to cling on to something before it's completely yeah, yeah. and there's so many of those films I mean uh, The Star is Born yeah, the, that Ron Hayer uh, restored yeah the, mm-hmm. yeah with the Judy Garland uh, James Mason version of the film you, know, you were reminding me Wade with that of uh, the film we know as Godzilla Yeah, that you know Americans had only seen in a, a badly chopped up version now that's finally been put back together it, to where it, it really should it be. Is. Now, did it, Raymond Burr survive the cut? <laughs> <or not? laughs> And um, I don't think he has his, I don't think he's as prominent. Okay. <laughs> also worth mentioning, I know Charles is going to jump on me for this, but, uh, you know, uh, Coppola restored the Cotton Club to a director's cut that elevated Gregory Hines and his brother's character to equal status with that of Richard Gere and Diane Lane. The, that premiered last year uh, at festivals, and, uh, and for whatever reason, MGM is refusing to release it. So go figure. I've tried to get an answer to that question. I haven't gotten that's one. That's another one I'd want an audience cut for. Yeah. I, I'm I'm one of those who defends Cotton Club, even the original uh, cut of, of that film. Um, Close Encounters. You were mentioning E.T. earlier. Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a director's cut. Yeah, there were there were yeah. two different cuts. Yeah, there were, he 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 did the special edition, and then everyone said we don't really want to see that ending. We like the ambiguous ending. We don't want to see Richard Dreyfuss sort of go inside. And then so that was uh, that rather mercenary effort was was deleted. And then there was a a more comprehensive cut that brought other stuff in but took the special edition ending off and that's the version that sort of is now official but all of them if you buy it on on 4k uh blu-ray you will get all of them they're all on it so interesting how it's these big directors we're talking about you know coppola spielberg leone i mean people of this stature we're talking about doing director's cuts or ridley scott but i wonder are there you know lesser directors who ever get this opportunity to put together a film that a studio might have might have butchered. I mean, sort of. Uh, it depends on how much you like the remixes of, say, Anchorman 2 or the 40-year-old version, <laughs> where they're just like, we have so many more jokes that we probably were right yeah. to cut. But do you want to see them just in case? Are you a completist? They're, they're still doing uh, rest, restored and added versions of the Orson Welles movies. Yeah, that's true. Now, good good point. You're mentioning about um, Ward Kimball spending a year on animating a scene yes. that was cut. The scene in Snow White where the dwarves eat the soup that she's cooked for them. You see them washing up to do. And there was a song about the music in your soup from your slurping. And Kimball, who became one of the night old men, was so angry when Walt said, I'm sorry we have to cut it. It holds up the story. 
he marched off and he was ready to quit and was going to read Walt the Riot Act. And Walt did what only he could do. He started talking about the next movie. And there was this wonderful cricket character that Ward was going to animate so brilliantly. And Ward said, you know, I floated back to my desk. And that was something everybody who worked with Disney had that experience that he could enchant you with the next project if you had any problems with this one. And you'd go back and they said, you know, a day or two later, you'd say, damn it, he did it again. And did the soup eating scene ever go back in or you just have to watch it no, in isolation? You, you, can, you see it in isolation because it wasn't inked and painted. It was just uh, animated. Quick shout, out for, fun, but... quick shout out for Richard Donner's uh, Superman 2 cut. He was fired from Superman 2. He never got his name on it, but he, he that's available on Blu-ray as well. All right. Very good. Thank you all so much. Amy Nicholson, Wade Major, Charles Solomon joining us as our critics this week on Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC. And you can share your favorite director's cuts or later cuts of films subsequently released theatrically or on disc on our Film Week page at kpcc.org. I look forward to talking with you next time. Film Week Fridays at 11, Saturdays at noon, right here on 89.3 KPCC. And have a great weekend.